English lit major, or maybe even not. Maybe you know uh, Mark Twain's classic, The Prince and the Pauper. Have you ever, you ever read it? You ever seen one of the movies? There's been a number of movies, uh, you know, that, that have been made from that classic. It was first published in 1881, and over the years, it's been made, as I said, into full, uh, several full-length films. I remember, you know, how when you're a kid. Uh, there's weird things that you remember. There's things you should remember, and then things that you, you just don't remember. And, and this is one of those weird kind of... I just remember as a little child watching the, ni- the 1937 adaptation with starring Errol Flynn of, of The Prince and the Pauper. And I think it was at my grandmother's house, and it just made an impression on me. I, I was a little kid, and it was just one of those childhood memories that uh, I still have. The story is set in 1547. And it tells the story of two young boys who are, for all intents and purposes, identical in appearance. Tom Canty, who is a pauper who lives with his terribly abusive father just off Pudding Lane in London, England, and uh, Prince Edward, son of uh, King Henry VIII. And through a series of events, the two boys, uh, though coming from very, very different backgrounds, uh, they meet up. And uh, right away, like everybody else, they see this uncanny resemblance between the two of them. And, you know, he, was, he had been so weary of the royal protocol, uh, Prince Edward, that he talks Tom Canty, his lookalike, into switching clothes. He wants to just go outside the palace for like an hour, just look around, walk down the streets, because he doesn't know what it's like. He's looked at the marketplace, but he's only seen the marketplace from up on the tower. So they do that. He goes outside the gates, and he walks around for a little while. But then when he tries to go back in... They won't let him in because he's, he's wearing the rags, and the guards just kind of roughly shove him out of the way. And uh, so the, the prince, Prince Edward, makes his way to the Canty home. He remembers where, what the address was, and he makes himself, his way to the home. He didn't know where, what else to do. And so entering the Canty home, the prince is subjected all of a sudden and immediately to the brutality of uh, Tom's abusive father. He manages it to escape and experiences the brutish life of those outside the palace firsthand. And he experiences all the cruelties and all the inequities of the British class structure at that time. And for the first time, he becomes aware of the stark class inequity in England. He sees the harsh, punitive, very often unjust nature of the English judicial system where people are burned at the stake. They're pilloried. They're flogged. And he realizes that many of the accused are are convicted really on hardly any evidence, flimsy, flimsy evidence, and then they're branded or they're hanged for petty offenses. And he is absolutely horrified. And he vows right then and there that if he ever can make it back to the palace, if he ever can get back in again, he was going to be a king who would reign with mercy and with compassion, but who knew if he would ever get in? Well, he did. I mean, that would be kind of a lousy story if he never made it back, right? I mean, nobody would buy that. But anyway, he does make it back. And true to his word, instead of just saying, thank God that's over with, I'm never leaving the palace again, he, he actually becomes a champion of the hurting and the helpless in the British society. Why? Because in his time outside the palace, he began to understand what a lot of people never come to understand, that he had been given the time and the talent, and the teaching, and the training, and the treasure that he had 
for a much larger purpose than to use it on himself. Queen Esther, in the study that we've been looking through now for about five weeks or so, is really a case study in someone who came to understand that very thing, and she was used by God to make a very, very big difference. It is the person who understands what we're going to talk about this morning who ultimately is going to move the world, and God's going to use to kind of bring healing to the world. So we want to get into it this morning. We've, as we've seen in previous weeks, the evil Haman, uh, you know, not content with just destroying Mordecai, who would not bow down to him because this guy, is, his, thin is so, his skin is so thin, he has such a tragic ego, that when Mordecai doesn't bow down to him, when everyone else is bowing down, he says, not only am I going to kill Mordecai, I'm going to kill everybody that looks like him, I'm going to kill all his people, I'm going to kill all the Jews. So he kind of connives to get Xerxes, the king, to sign an edict that says, you know, 11 months hence... Every Jew in the kingdom of Persia, which was a vast kingdom at this point, uh, was going to be killed. Just, it's open game. It's open hunting on Jews. And whoever you kill, whatever they have, whatever they own, is yours. So there's a little extra incentive, evil incentive in there anyway. Well, when Mordecai and all the Jews hear about this, they go immediately into mourning, which is very, very understandable. But they do something else. They don't just go into mourning and say, you know, this is a terrible thing. We need to cry and, and wail and put on sackcloth and ashes and stuff like that. They intuitively begin to connect the dots. And they realize that what's about to happen, somehow God is involved in this. And, and they realize that they had forsaken him in this new comfortable land. And they were not only in the world of, their, of this foreign empire but firmly and quite happily of the world of their pagan overlords. And so when Mordecai asked Esther to immediately use her influence to go in and implore the king, her husband, to you know, stop this holocaust that's about to occur, Esther originally, originally pushes back. Remember we talked about this. She says, you know what, Mordecai doesn't get it. If I go in there and I'm not summoned by the king, and I haven't been summoned in 30 days, I think he's losing interest in me. If, if, if I'm not summoned, I will probably lose my head. I probably won't get out of that meeting alive. But Mordecai sends word back to her. So he's not moved by that. He sends word back to her, and he says this in Esther chapter 4 that Liz just read to us. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What do people whom God uses for his glory, for their good, and for the good of those around them, come to understand? What must they come to understand before God uses them? What is necessary for someone to make, and make no mistake about it, this, is what, this was a pivot point in Esther's life. What, what do you need to understand to make a pivot point in your life to be used by God in a significant life-giving way? What do, you, what, you know, what do they need to know? What do we need to know? What do we need to consider? Well, at the end of chapter 4 and at the beginning of chapter 5 of Esther, uh, we see two groups of people. Uh, you got ordinary citizens of the empire, and then you have, as I thought about it all week, you have what I'm going to just entitle palace people. 
people who lived in the palace. This past Friday, uh, I traveled to Pennsylvania for a funeral of uh, a good friend's mother. Uh, I had been to this particular city a couple hours away uh, before, but I had never driven uh, into the heart of the city and dri- driven around the streets. And there was a, you know, it was a, it was a Roman Catholic church. It was old, old church, and it was right in the center of, uh, of the city. So I had to go through a lot of streets I'd never even knew existed before. And uh, it was a very, very depressed area. In fact, the entire area of Pennsylvania where this, uh, you know, this funeral was, was built on the coal industry. And you don't even need to go deeply into town, but if you drive e- anywhere near the city, you'll see the pockmarks of where the coal companies were and then left. Uh, I mean, giant craters. It's like, you know, you're driving and all of a sudden you see this and you're going, what the heck is that? And you see it's just dug out. It's just dug- earth that is just dug out and just unnatural cliffs and, and, and things like that. And, and uh, you know, you drive through town and uh, basically I, I, when I went to the, you know, the, the, the luncheon after the funeral, one of the guys said to me, he said, you know what, it's like the, the coal industry came in here, they used up the area, and then they just left. You know, it's like, it's like a, a friend who uses your shore house, and then you go back the next week and the beds are unmade, and there's dishes piled high in the sink, and there's dirty towels on the bathroom floor, and you're going, what, are you kidding me? I mean, you know, that's kind of that's the mindset. Now, if you drive through town, some of the homes are kept reasonably well, but most of them, most of them definitely are not. The roads are scarred with various side craters, and, and this, you know, once bustling storefronts of commerce were now empty, waiting for tenants that are never going to come back. Never. And I have to say, as I was driving, I felt really depressed. Now, it was raining, and it, I was going to a funeral. I get it. But you know what? I have a feeling that the fact, you know, if the, if the sun came out, and I was going to the circus, or, no, I hate the circus. It's something else that I like. Clowns are creepy. Clowns are creepy. I'm very happy that Barman Bailey is pulling up tent. Sorry, sorry. Anyway, but if I was going to something, someplace I really, really liked... Um, I don't think it would have changed my opinion. I think I still would have been depressed, you know, driving through that city. I don't think the sun would have made enough of a difference to change my opinion. Now, listen, here's the thing. I have been in poor neighborhoods before. I've traveled in other countries that were exceedingly poor. But my, my response, my feeling so down, it almost like startled me a little because I had seen much worse poverty. I really had. So I I was kind of startled by by this. Um, And then I realized when I was driving home, and this is what I realized, it doesn't take very long after living in the relative splendor of my hometown, about a mile from here, uh, to forget what it's like outside, where millions and millions of people live every single day here and around the world. See, living in plenty had a dulling effect on me. It did. And it struck me. You know what struck me when I was driving home? I live in the palace. I live in the palace. I am a palace person. And the reason I know that I'm a palace person is that I was so very shocked and disturbed by seeing what was happening outside the palace. 
And as I drove home, I thought of how many communities there must be in the United States where there are not nice streets, where, where people don't have disposable you know, income to keep various weeds and insects from turning you know, the front lawn into an unkept field of stubble. Where when the spindles on the front porch you know, begin to rot, they, along with 550 other things, are put on the, one of these days i got to get to that list, a list that keeps growing and never gets cut down. One spoke, person I spoke to at the lunch after the funeral said that this city did excel in one thing. In fact, he believed it led the nation in one thing. It led the nation in people who were hooked on and families decimated by drugs in the area more than anywhere else in the country. He told me that a bag of heroin on the street was currently going for $5. Now, I didn't, I, look, I haven't had time to check out his claim fully. This was Friday afternoon. Uh, but if it's true, then it's cheaper to get high on heroin than it is to get drunk. So, you know, you, know, you start thinking about this, and you say, when, when you're trying to wash away the brutalities of life for a while, and you have limited funds to do so, I would imagine that you would do it in the most economically feasible way. Wouldn't you say so? When you get out of the palace, you begin to hear all kinds and see all kinds of strange and disturbing things. Reading, reading a little bit between the lines of history, I'm thinking that Queen Esther, as I've kind of torn the book apart, Queen Esther probably had a very modest upbringing. She worked hard. She did her own hair. She had a couple, possibly a few, change of clothes tucked away in the corner of her small living space in which she lived with her cousin Mordecai. But then she won the contest, remember? And she went to live in the palace. And in a breath of time, she lost touch with the things outside the palace, and her greatest concern came between choosing, you know, the vegetarian delight or the grilled salmon for dinner. I mean, things changed considerably. There are certain commonalities between people who live in the palace. See, palace people always have a certain amount of disposable income, income that's kind of laying around. A lot of times they don't think they, you know, that they have a lot. But uh, they have uh, an income that a lot of people, most people outside the palace would look at and go, if I was making that, if I had that saved, I don't think I'd have a care in the world. See, palace people have that. Palace people uh, also have clout. They have influence over people, whether it's a few people or a lot of people. They just do. They've learned certain skills for successful palace living. They've come to learn that over a period of time. They've worked up pretty impressive resumes. Now, on the other hand, there are some things that no one in the palace is worrying about or even considering. Palace people are not thinking every morning, uh, I wonder if I'll have money for food tonight for the family. I wonder if, and I was t as I was typing this, I was looking outside the window, and I think it was Wednesday. It was brutally cold, and the wind, I thought the whole... That the building was coming down. It was just so bad. Remember, there's just things blowing. I've never seen things blowing. And I'm saying to myself, you know what? Um, there are some people right now who are out in this. Not because they like the feel of being out in a storm. 
Because that's where they live. That's where they live. And, and, and you know what? Palace people, they don't got to worry whether they're going to be warm at night. You know what? No, nobody turns off their heat. It doesn't happen. They have no present experience. They don't get stuff like that. It doesn't mean that they're terrible people. Just hold on for one second. I'm not saying that palace people are terrible people. They just, they just, for the most part, lose touch. Sometimes it's not even their fault. It just happens. Now, you know how I know that Esther lost touch and became a palace person? You know how I know that? Because at the beginning of chapter 4, when Mordecai heard of the king's edict to massacre his people... He exchanged his clothes. Remember, he put on sackcloth and ashes, which was a universal sign that, you know, something is terribly, terribly wrong, and, and, and as a sign of repentance. And he just sat outside the palace weeping and wailing for what was to come. Esther hears about it. And do you know what Esther's reaction is? Her reaction is to quickly get a change of clothes and bring them, have someone go out and bring it to Mordecai. Basically, she says, I don't know what happened, cousin. I don't know why you're in such a state that you're in right now. But you got to get out of those embarrassing rags and put on some regular clothes. And then let's get together and let's talk about this. See, when presented with her provisions, though, she didn't get it. In verse 4, it says, but he would not accept them. He wouldn't accept them. Do you see what was happening? Mordecai saw that his little cousin, whom he had raised after her parents died, had become a palace person. She did. And the only way to shock her back into reality was to drag her outside the palace to once again see the reality of what was really going on. It was shocking to see her turn around. But you know what? It's shocking how easy it is to become anybody to become a palace person and how hard it is to coax them out beyond the gates. You know, for those who were born in the palace, for the most part, they just don't know any different. Honestly, I, I kind of already alluded to that. It's not that they're totally without understanding. They've driven outside the palace. They've watched television. Uh, some of them, you know, are, you know, they went to school. They learned a bit about it. They even major in social work, some of the people in the palace, you know. But, you know, they really never had a full experience of what's going on outside the palace. And the only way that they ever will is if one day they decide to deliberately, of their own volition, walk outside the palace to put on the rags, to identify with everyone else, to become one of them, and to really experience life as they experience. But i got to tell you something. We, we were just talking to, you know, Barrett, Elias Barat. And uh, you know what? It takes courage. It takes courage to do that stuff. It, it, it takes a certain amount of risk to deliberately move into another circle and to see up close and personal what's happening. That is a very tough sell to someone who was born in the palace. But I got to tell you something, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because I believe that there's an even tougher sell. What's tougher is to sell to those who were born on the street somehow through grit and education and determination made it into the palace to somehow coax them back out of the palace to do ministry among the people of whom they once were a member. See, that's, 
That's a harder sell. I'm done with the streets. I'm finished with that nonsense. I'm not going back out there. I've worked to get inside. Consider this. Only after a few years, this is a few years between, remember she won the contest? And then we come, you know, the end of chapter 4. Only a few years of palace living, Esther had to be dragged out to once again face the challenges outside the palace so that she could now use her newfound palace position, her palace prestige, and her palace power to make a difference in what was going on outside the palace. And here's the thing I think Mordecai was saying to Esther. My dear, my dear sweet cousin, if you are unwilling to take a step outside the palace, you have become a committed palace person. And if you are a committed palace person, it is not so much that you possess the palace as it is that the palace possesses you. It has you. It's taken over you. The tail is now officially wagging the dog. If my response to stepping outside the palace is, if I go outside, you know what? It may inhibit my upward mo- you know, mobility in the palace. This may be a black mark on my resume inside the palace if I go outside the palace. If I expend energy outside the palace, well, there's less energy to spend inside the palace. If I spend outside the palace, you know, even a little bit, or radically spend outside the palace, there's going to be less to spend inside the palace. It may well jeopardize my position inside the palace. And when you start saying things like that to yourself, you have been had. The palace has you. We here at the crossing in, in uh, I think, modest ways. I got to label them modest ways. Try to get people outside the palace. We have a wonderful ministry that we were instrumental in starting in Patterson, New Jersey, called Renew Life Center. You've heard of it? A lot of you have. And, and, And it's a ministry that takes a select group of women who originally came in a crisis pregnancy situation and takes just, you know, just a select few, ones who really want to change ones who want to get out of the circle you know, that they're in, that they're stuck in, and mentors them and educates them and gives them life skills and loves them and loves their children. Folks, i got to tell you something right now. The Renew Life Center is a ministry that is making a difference in Patterson, New Jersey. And you guys... You guys are one of the reasons that it's happening with your financial giving during our all-in campaign. And you know what, you know what really just is, I, I find just fantastic? The people on staff at the Renew Life Center and the volunteers and staff and, you know, the people who are working there, most of the people who are involved in that ministry were either born in the palace or they were people, a lot of people, who were born outside the palace made it back into the palace, and then said, I hear the voice of God. i got to go back outside. Got to go back outside the palace. What a great way, once you are struck with your royal identity, to decide to deliberately walk outside the palace and, and, and to do volunteer work at our Renew Life Center. Marisol Rodriguez, who was a member of our church for many, many years, who God kind of put it in her heart 
at, at a global leadership summit a few years ago, put it in her heart to start the, you know, the Renew Center, the uh, Renew Life Center. Uh, she's going to be at a table opposite the Welcome Center out there. You go out, you go to your left at the end of the service, and I don't know. You know, you never know who God will, will strike. The Holy Spirit speaks in a service, any given service. And she's there just to answer questions, tell you the needs that they have at the Renew Life Center. We're, we're, not, we're not letting go of Renew Life Center. That's going to be our ministry forever, as long as I'm here and I'm sure way beyond. So uh, go talk to Marisol. Um, last year, we began a ministry in Guatemala in association with World Orphans. There are tens of millions of children around the globe who either have no parents no present parents in the home, or if there is a parent in the home present, cannot provide, a lot of times, even the basics for their own children. Parents, you know what? You, you Remember the Christmas where you hardly had any money and you couldn't buy a lot of gifts and how you felt? Imagine not being able to provide food and, 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 and clothing. Imagine, imagine being that type of parent in that situation. And, and we, we partnered with a local church that is working with world orphans there. And, uh, and, and folks, I have to tell you, the, the place where the church, the local church is, it's in a section. It's not the worst section in Guatemala. It is the most highly crime-ridden section in Central America. And we sent a team, our first mission team, in November there. And they had a life-changing experience. Some of you were here when you heard, you know... Uh, Barrett was saying how, you know, when he went to minister, and he came, and he goes, well, I, I'm not sure who was ministered to more, them or me. And that's what our mission team said when they came back, that, that, that these, you know, we went there, you know, we're the Americans, we're going in, we're here to, you know, we're here to wave the flag and just tell, we're here now, everybody relax. No, you know what, they went, and uh, they were ministered to deeply, their hearts and, you know, we're going again in November. Maybe you can take a vacation week. Maybe you'll decide by, you know, God's Spirit speaking to you that you're, you're going to venture outside the palace with us. I'm going to be going. Will Perez will be going again. And Will's going to be outside across in the Welcome Center standing next to Marisol. If you have any questions, maybe just, you know, when is it, you know, you know, he, just general questions. He'll be there at the end of the service to answer any questions about this upcoming trip. But listen, getting outside the palace, uh, it works both ways, you know. We walk away with as much or more than, you know, if we had stayed inside the palace. I remember years ago, we went our very first mission trip. Our very, I'll never forget. I remember saying to our, our guys, uh, our elders at the time, we got to start doing mission trips. And I want everybody to go on a mission trip at some point. Uh, and so our first one, it was with mostly, most of the kids, it was some adults, but mostly our youth, and we went to the Dominican Republic. And I remember the day we went through the streets in the open markets in the Dominican Republic, and, you know, they have chickens there where they'll cut their heads off and defeather them there while you wait. And see, our kids thought that chicken came in cellophane, and that's how they come. We don't know where they come from, but that's how, you know, that's where they are, and they're in the, the cold section there, in the frozen section. And, and they saw this stuff, and they saw poverty up close, real, some real poverty, some, some areas. We went out, and, you know, to the countryside and saw people living just, boy, the barest, the barest of, 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 of uh, shacks. 
And, and they saw that. And I remember their eyes were like saucers. And we, were, we, were, we went to this one wonderful local church that our missionaries were associated with a couple times, or a midweek service and a Sunday service. And the people there had large hearts. And the worship, man, it wasn't, it wasn't even a, a, a 20th of as wonderful sounding as ours was. But there was a, there was a passion and there was a, you know, there, there was a depth of feeling, and the people worshipped, and they were just wonderful people, and, and uh, uh, it was just a, a, a great, great time. And at the end of the trip, um, our host said, you know, guys, these are, now don't forget, these are junior and senior hires for the most part, and he said, uh, if you guys want to leave something behind, uh, like your jeans, that, that you might as well line them with gold. I mean, they're gold here. Uh, if you want to leave... Just to let you know that our kids went home really light suitcases, really, really light suitcases because their hearts had been enlarged and they had been set free just a smidgen from the crass materialism that is so much of palace living. See, palace living kind of jades you. You got to get out. Some of us need to say to ourselves, you know what, I'm going to push myself. This next year, I am going to push myself outside the palace. I need to take my skills, and I need to take my intellect, and I need to take my treasure, and I need in some capacity to move outside the palace. I need to stop looking at what I have, much of it which has been given to us. Many of the avenues we walked down, we were picked up and hit, okay, walked down this street. For many of us, okay? And, and we, we need to see it, uh, uh, these things, as more than, than to, you know, kind of jockey for position inside the palace, but as a way to serve others who are outside. I need to be more risky. I need to be more interested in those who need justice, who need relief. You know, sometimes the only way to understand the way of the world is to get outside the palace. The problem is... The problem is, a lot of times, people who live in the palace, they don't even know they live there. They don't get it. They've become so comfortable with palace living that although they've heard rumors of those outside the palace, they live as though they didn't really exist. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I know there's challenges in the palace. The curse and the fall reaches to every recess and every corner of our present existence. I've said many times the difference between Newark, New Jersey and Livingston, New Jersey is that in Livingston, New Jersey, the curtains are much thicker. They're much, much thicker. A lot of stuff happening in Livingston, New Jersey. Okay. Jesus said every day has enough trouble of its own. We get it. We get that. But outside the palace, I mean really outside the palace, there's stuff going on that can be really scary, really scary stuff. There's, there's a, a, a talk of a depth and a, and a breath of human suffering and challenges and brokenness that, for me, is positively unnerving. It is positively unnerving. Sometimes from the exclusive view of the palace, it's hard for me to see it all. In fact, it's impossible. But when you do see it, you've got two choices. Either shut yourself off from those outside the palace, or you will be struck with the overwhelming responsibility of having to come out of the palace to do what you can for those outside. What is necessary for someone to make that pivot, to be used by God in a significant life-giving way? I'll tell you. 
People who make a life pivot know where they're from. They know where they live. They know where they are. Sometimes, and I think it's the biggest hurdle. It's the biggest hurdle. But there's something else. One other thing. People who make a life pivot know something else. They know why they're here. They know why they're on planet Earth. Esther, having been reminded of where she lives, is reminded of why she was here where she was. And who knows, but this uh, who, but who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For the very first time in her life, Esther is confronted with the why question, and for the first time, she knew what the answer was. If you look at that chapter there, before that, you know, right up to the point where Mordecai confronts her, you know, she gives a little pushback, and he pushes really hard back, she's been taking orders. She takes orders from the king. She takes orders from the eunuch and, 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 you know, who's charge of the harem. She's taking orders from Mordecai. All of a sudden, she's giving orders. See, when she found out who she was, when she found out what she was called to do before God Almighty, she's the one who started giving the orders. She's the one who's saying, all right, you know, everybody, you go out and you can make sure everybody has a fast. She's the one who goes in and does everything she can to look as desirable as she could with the talents that she had and the thing that she understood to appear before the king so that he would hold out the scepter, you know, in, in a moment of weakness maybe, and she could touch it, and then she could make a request to save her people. She knew who she was. The problem is this. Most people don't know who they are. They only know what they've been told. Only know what they've been told. That's it. Um, if you had went to Esther before this and said, Esther, God's going to use you to do a, a, an a, a amazing, amazing work, she probably would have said, who, you talking to me? You know, in the words of a famous movie, you talking to me, right? Uh, you know, people up until this point, you know what people said to her when she appeared? Gee, you're pretty. That's it. She had not, she, that was her identity. Gee, you're pretty. But now God had given her something much bigger, much grander, much meatier. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, told them in clear, unambiguous terms why they had been saved from a life of aimless self-consumption and sinful inclinations in their unredeemed flesh and brought into his glorious light. You know what it says in verse 8 of, of uh, Ephesians chapter 2? For it is by grace, you know this one, you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship. Actually, it says handiwork in the NIV, which is kind of cool. We're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God prepared, prepared good works for us to do before the creation of the world. That word handiwork is a Greek word, pome, which has you know, the connotation of, of a craftsman working his art, doing what he does best. In fact, uh, what, what word do we get from it? You know what word we get from uh, you know, poeme? Poem. We get the word poem. Uh, you, it's almost as if you're God's poetry. You're his story. Your life is part of a grander scheme and a grander story. You are God's artwork. What he's saying is, if you're God's artwork, you need to know that you're an expression of the inner being of the artist. You are. Everyone is. 
And God will pour himself into you. But he will pour a part of himself into you so you reflect his glory to others. That's why he does it in a particular way with your certain particular gifts. You have certain capacities. You have certain things that you do well. You have certain deeds that only you can do. You know, in, in Ephesians chapter 2 there, he's talking about two things. Number one, he's talking about saving grace. A grace that saves sinners from judgment and hell. God uses us to introduce people to that grace. If there's no preacher, no one can hear. If there's no hearing, there's no salvation. God uses us to bring that message to people. But there is another grace, one which we also have been called to. You know what I call it? I call it restoring grace. Restoring grace. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7 says this. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 4, what's he, talk, well, what's, what's he talking about in 4, 7? Hey, this is what he's talking about. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. The grace Paul is talking about there is not grace that saves, but grace that restores. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 is talking about grace that restores. It is a restorative grace. What's a spiritual gift? Well, a spiritual gift is a capacity or an enablement to meet the needs of people given by the Holy Spirit, whereby people uh, come under the Lordship of Christ. They come to know Jesus. They're built up in quality. They're built up in quantity. The church is, is, is built up. A spiritual gift is the ability you have to bring somebody more under the Lordship and kingship of Christ so there's a restoration at least a beginning of restoration in that person's life. Spiritual gifts are a way to set people free. A way to bring them closer to Christ. A way to meet their needs in such a way that they're freed from the things that enslave them. You know, when people begin to operate outside the management of Jesus Christ in their finances, in their relationships, in their sex life, in their business interactions. You know what happens inexorably? They begin to break down. Their life begins to break down. But if you put something under the management of Jesus Christ, it begins to heal. It begins to be restored under his kingship. Jesus has amazing, tremendous ability to serve, to heal, to transform. And God uses some people to do things that are needed to see that happen in a more effective way than others. There are some, certain things that you do, and you're doing better than me. You're just doing better than me. Romans chapter 12 and verse 14 says this, Even so, the body is not made up of, of one part, but many parts in the body. Most Christians don't know who they are, which makes it enormously difficult to make an all-important pivot in their life. And perhaps the biggest reason for that is that often they can't see how God has gifted them, how God has positioned them. And so they can't see opportunities that would be perfect matches for them, absolute hand-in-glove matches. Now in the back, next to Will, who's standing next to Marisol, there's a little test, <laughs> okay, <laughs> at the end of the service. I, I forgot to bring a copy up here, but it's, I think it's 110 questions. Uh, it's a spiritual gifts test. And you know what? A lot of people... They have no idea how God has gifted them. They say, well, I kind of like this and this. And Wait, what does this even mean? Take the test. It's free. Bring it home. I've taken it 15, 20 times uh, over the years, over 20 years. And um, 
It's not, look, this is not the end all, but it's interesting how every time I've taken it, different periods of my life, the same three or four gifts always are clumped at the top, which says to me, you probably should be doing this or keep the, you know, when I, I, I had doubts, you know, I don't even know if I should be preaching, doing stuff, you know, I take the test, I go, well, it's still up there, I, I guess maybe I should still do that, see, it, 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 use it as an aid, use it as a help, because you know what, we want you to be working for the kingdom, God has prepared these works for you, and one of the reasons why you don't do it sometimes is that you don't know what you're supposed to do, there are certain People that are built to help in certain ways best. There are certain things you have been called to do. You have a mission, whoever you are. If you are his child, you are called to mission. You have been brought into the position you're in right now for such a time as this. Ask God what it is. You know, one of the most popular forms of giving, gift giving in the United States, in the past 15 years, you know what the most popular gift is? Gift cards. Very good. Gift cards. Yeah, you go, you go to CVS, it's, it's always last minute. It's like, ah, oh, we didn't get her a gift. So you, you run at the CVS, and you turn that thing, you know, spinning around. It's restaurants, and there's shops, and there's sneaker stores, and, you know, whatever, whatever you want to get. You, you go, and you buy, you, you buy. They only have them in, is there anything less than 25? I don't want to spend 25 on her. It's like you're looking for the cheaper ones, but, but they're, they're, it's there. And, you know, when they see you coming, when a retailer, or if you go into a store, like you go into Panera or something, and you buy a gift card, they love it when you buy gift cards. Do you know why retailers love it when you buy gift cards? Here's why. Because there is a 10% chance that that gift card will never be redeemed. It will never be used. The biggest reason is that one out of every 10 cards are never purchased or never used, or they're partially used, or, as I said, never ever redeemed. And they remain in a wallet, they remain in a drawer, or they're thrown out with the original card. Where's that card? Oh, I throw those cards out. What? There was a $100 gift certificate in that! Has that ever happened to you? It's, you know, I, I don't know if I've had 100, but I've had smaller ones that I think we've done that with. According to who you read, according to who you read, since 2005, since 2005, between 40, listen, between 40 and 60, 60, billion dollars in gift cards have gone unused. That's under 12 years. What a waste. And think of the power. Go in the low number, 40 billion. I was thinking of the Crossing Church who was giving 40, 40 billion dollars. There's a few things around here I'd like to finish up. I've got to be honest with you right now. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, but if we had 40 billion dollars... I think we would do, I, I think we would do world-changing things. I really do. I, I, you know, I think people who have no hope from ministries in this church would find Jesus and would have hope. I, I really, folks, I really believe that 100%. I really believe that. I think people would come into the kingdom. I think that thousands upon thousands of people would be changed, both here and overseas, forever. And listen, i got to tell you, I am so grateful that here at The Crossing, statistically, we are ahead of the curve when it comes to people using their gifts to minister to others. We really are. And yet I still know, I know, that we have a lot of unused gifts sitting here this morning. Imagine if we took our gifts... We went outside the palace, and we started spreading those gifts around. Could you imagine? Take what he has given you. Use it. 
You're his fullness. There are no spare parts in the body of Christ. Every Christian is a minister. Every Christian has to find out what it is that God has for them to do the work of the kingdom. You say, I, I have works you know, only I can do? Really? Frankly, uh, Pastor Tim, I'm so tired. I feel so weak. I, I, I need to be fed. Can, can't I just come and be fed? Folks, of course you can. And in a sense, there are seasons, and of course there are times to take in to heal, to repair, to grow. But let me tell you something. Output is as important as input when it comes to health. Isn't it? You say, I feel so tired. I'm too tired to exercise. And, and, you, and, and you never exercise. Do you get more tired or, or do you get you know, more energy? You get more tired, don't you? You do. You end up getting more tired. The way to get your wind back is actually to do the very thing you don't feel like doing at the time. You have to grow through output as well as input. Now, on the last day, let me, close, I'm gonna just, let me close with this. The last day, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is going to get the Christians together. And he's going to say to you, basically, you know the parable of the talents. I give you ten talents, and what did you bring? And he says, well, I brought ten talents. I gave you five, and what did you, well, I brought five talents, I brought two, I, you know, I brought one, I brought, and, 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 and it goes down the line. See, God is asking you to produce fruit at the level which he endowed you with. He doesn't ask you to be the superstar. He asks you to produce on the level that he has given. He's not asking you to be a superhero, just to be true to what your endowment is. He is just asking me to kind of take my place in line. Jesus Christ poured himself out until there was nothing left. Nothing. He gave everything to redeem us so that you and I could begin to heal so that you and I could begin to become whole so that the world, the entire world one day could be restored. Jesus Christ left the ultimate palace, and he went outside the walls to minister to broken humanity, and as he left, he distributed parts of himself, his ministry capacity to you and to me through the agency of the Holy Spirit. You know what? There came a time, there came a time when Queen Esther came to the stark realization of where she lived and what she was called to do. Though she had once been outside the palace, palace living does something to our brain, and she, she kind of forgot. But by God's grace, she was given the choice to pivot into God's plan for her, to bless her, to build her, to enlarge her world and the world of others around her, or, or to retreat back to the comfortable surroundings of the palace. She made a pivot, and she chose to be able to go down God's path. And people were saved through her. And God is asking us to do the same thing. Maybe you don't know what to do. But if you are open, and if you are honest, and if you are truly seeking, God will show you the way so that one day in eternity, as we said, People will walk up to you and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for using your God-given gifts to heal my brokenness. If it wasn't for you, thank you. 
when we know where we live, when we know why we are here, we have the tools to make a life pivot that will change us and everybody around us. We are here to be a blessing to others. God has saved us not to be palace people, but to be people that he uses to bring his grace to others. Thank you.